information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to APT and Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast discussion on cerebellar dizziness assessment and treatment. This is your host, Puneet Daliwal, physical therapist and vestibular rehab specialist, and I'm joined today by Dr. Andrea Zwergel. Dr. Zwergel obtained his MD in 2006 from Technical University Munich and a further a PhD in molecular biology from the same university. He's a board-certified neurologist and holds certification in intensive care medicine. His clinical expertise includes clinical neurology, neurotology, neurophysiology, movement disorders, neuromodulation, and multimodal imaging, both in humans and animals. Dr. Zwergel is an eminent neurologist and has won multiple awards, including the EFNS Award for Young Researcher, EAN European Researcher Award, Barony Society Young Investigator Award. He holds multiple memberships, including DGKN, DGN, EAN, MDS, Barony Society. Furthermore, he is a speaker for European Research Network, DizzyNet, and deputy speaker for DSGZ. His interests include neuronal plasticity, neurological network disorders, non-invasive neuromodulation, translational research, rare disorders, movement disorders, and balance disorders. Um, Hello and welcome, Dr. Zwergel, and thank you so much for taking time out to speak with us today. So it's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so uh, when we talk about um, cerebellar dizziness, what do we usually mean by that? Actually, cerebellar dizziness is a broad term, which includes a lot of different disorders, which can happen acutely or recurrently or persistently. But all of these disorders share um, signs and symptoms of cerebellar dysfunction, uh, which bring them together to form the entity of uh, cerebellar dizziness. Um, when, we, when we say dizziness, dizziness is such a vague term. Um, whenever these patients come to you, do they have any specific symptoms or how would you define dizziness for our listeners? Actually, um, as you said, dizziness is very vague, and these patients may come and complain of very different uh, symptoms like gait instability, falls, uh, even uh, spells of vertigo or um, oscillopsia on movements. Uh, so dizziness is uh, not always the leading symptom, but rather complaints of uh, balance and uh, postural problems and um, the perception of uh, vestibular symptoms uh, such as dizziness or vertigo. Right. So can we interchange the term like uh, with between central pattern dizziness and cerebellar dizziness or cerebellar dizziness is very specific um, terminology when we talk about it? So actually there is no commonly accepted terminology, but central pattern dizziness would uh, refer to more broad spectrum of disorders coming from the brainstem and the cerebellum mostly. So cerebellar dizziness would be a, a subdomain of the more general term central pattern dizziness. Okay. And uh, like you already mentioned, like brainstem also results in dizziness. Um, will we 
discuss further when we talk about cerebellar dizziness differentiated will there be a difference between oh this is brainstem dizziness as a as a clinician and this is cerebellar dizziness do you see in your practice how to differentiate between the two or the primarily it's uh, imaging at that point of time so of course there is a, a vast overlap of both um, systems because um, taking the evolution the vestibular nuclei for example are part of the cerebellum so there is an overlap of course of course there are quite distinct syndromes like Wahlberg syndrome uh, which can be clearly assigned to the brainstem and others uh, which only happen with cerebellar disorders uh, but there is a a big overlap of both systems due to neuroanatomy and physiology. And what causes cerebellar dizziness? As you heard, this is a broad term and it right. includes all different kinds of disorders. Um, of course, um, some of them are of neurodegenerative origin, others are hereditary and uh, the Third most important may be the acquired cerebellar syndromes, which can be due to a paraneoplastic, inflammatory, metabolic, or toxic etiologies. So that is very different etiologies, but all of them affect the cerebellar circuits for oculomotor and vestibular control and uh, come together in the symptom of cerebellar dizziness. And how frequent is cerebellar dizziness? So it has been underestimated because nobody really um, was looking into depth and examining oculomotor dysfunction in these people. We recently published a paper where we uh, examined 5,400 patients with all different kinds of vertigo and dizziness. And it turned out that about 10% of these patients had a cerebellar dysfunction as an underlying cause. So at least in a tertiary referral center, uh, cerebellar dizziness is uh, about 10% of all presentations. That's a big number. Um, mm. And how do you um, identify these patients clinically when, we, when the patient first comes to you? So we do it as we always do with vestibular disorders to take a um, history, ask certain questions, and then follow with a examination of the um, neurotological systems. As it comes to history, um, it might be a bit difficult to distinguish these patients because, as you heard, um, cerebellar dizziness can happen in acute settings. It can present with recurrent disorders in about 30% of cases and in the rest of patients with a chronic progressive disorder. Overall, it's important to recognize that uh, the pure quality of symptoms is not really distinguishing um, cerebellar dizziness from other disorders, except especially in the acute setting. So if you look into patients with cerebellar um, ischemia of acute onset, half of these patients will complain of dizziness, the other half of more uh, vertigo-like symptoms, and uh, some patients even only about postural instability. So the chief complaint will not really help you, but what will help you in the acute setting is to ask for triggers uh, for previous history of vertigo and, of course, for accompanying symptoms, for example, double vision. Right. Double vision is one of the standard um, tests for like um, central, central disorders. 
So, um, and I, as much as you had previously mentioned about uh, the neuroocular projections, would you also test that uh, in the acute setting? Like, you, would you start off with an oculomotor exam for patients? For sure. So I think if it comes to acute presentations, we have to follow a certain uh, schedule to not miss any um, acute essential disorders. Of course, if you would have patients with a acute vestibular syndrome and nystagmus, you would prefer to do HINTS first, which is the combination of head impulse testing, uh, testing for gaze, evoked nystagmus and skew deviation. And if it comes to the cerebellum, you should also include signs of the ocular tilt reaction, which would be a deviation of the subjective visual vertical, ocular torsion and skew deviation. And what is uh, exactly important and helpful in these um, dif different presentations is also to test for head shaking nystagmus, because it's been reported by the Korean group of uh, Kim and others that a so-called perverted head shake nystagmus may be a sensitive sign of cerebellar lesions, meaning that the nystagmus changes direction or goes into a vertical direction if you do head shakes. So that would be the ocular part, at least the most uh, sensitive parts of it. And of course, every patient with acute vertigo dizziness should be examined in a standing position to see if there is a falling tendency or an inability to stand. Now, when you when someone presents to us with vertigo, um, um, not all physical therapists work in acute settings. Um, um, there are other people who are coming into outpatient settings. How do you distinguish between uh, peripheral, other than these exams, uh, when we say, oh, this is a peripheral dizziness uh, as compared to central? Would you add any component to to the oculomotor uh, function to distinguish between the two? I think the motor function yeah, is the most important, to be honest, because it's the most sensitive. If you look into a certain subdomains, for example, uh, smooth pursuit disorders, um, which you regularly find in cerebellar disorders, also of acute onset, or into fixation suppression of the VOR, which is another sensitive sign, or saccadic function, these actually are the ocular motor parts which really give you a central disorder and clearly differentiate it from peripheral origin. So we have to look into the eyes in order to distinguish these kinds of disorders. So um, it's very clearly known that anatomy of the cerebellum is very closely related to the oculomotor function. Would you discuss a little bit about that? Like when we talk about smooth pursuit, what should we mm -hmm. think about that this could be a dysfunction? What part of the cerebellum? So a cerebellum overall is an um, incredibly difficult organ, as you yeah. all may uh, agree. So um, actually, I think there is nobody out in the world who understands that completely. But overall, if it comes to ocular motor control, we do have good uh, insights from animal experiments, functional imaging, and lesion studies that three um, areas of the cerebellum may be the most important. First of all, the um, vestibular cerebellar regions, which is the flocculus, paraflocculus, and nodulus, that is maybe the most important part uh, if it comes to vestibular and ocular motor control. 
and dysfunctions of these kinds of areas lead to a saccadic smooth pursuit to a pathology of um, visual fixation suppression of the VOR and also to deficits of gaze holding, namely gaze-evoked nystagmus. For the nodulus, you may have additionally the very clear symptom of a central positional nystagmus. The other two regions which are engaged in oculomotor control actually is the um, superior vermis, also called oculomotor vermis, and the vestigial nucleus, uh, which actually are engaged in control of saccade metria. So these kinds of lesions can give you either hypermetric or hypometric saccades. And I think that's the way how you could uh, conceptualize that for the clinical application. I had a very interesting central position in the stagmus case, um, and I, it was early in my practice, and I kept thinking it was BPPV. I would put the patient down into um, Dixall Pike position, the patient would experience uh, nystagmus and fatigue. And when we brought the patient up, uh, the nystagmus would re- reverse. And so um, you, it's, it's a nodular dysfunction. How um, should someone who, who sees it for the first time um, think further? Because I, I treated the patient, patient didn't resolve, and patient was referred to us for BPPV. And we had to send the patient back that possibly there's a central sign. Patient had a previous history of um, a stroke and other problems, but uh, the physician still thought it was uh, BPPV. In, in such um, inconclusive cases, how do we um, how do we we be more sure? Like just doing a plea maneuver would be like a good example that, okay, this doesn't resolve, probably there's something else going on and could be possible central positional uh, nystagmus, or um, is there any additional test that uh, would um, justify my um, decision-making in that time? Yeah, thank you for that very interesting case. So that is a common situation that you cannot really distinguish from history or even from the first steps of exam. Um, You know, there is still a few um, pearls how to differentiate it. And I think what we should be aware of, um, first of all, is that the central cases of positional nystagmus um, often do not really follow the anatomy of the stimulated semicircular canal. So whenever nystagmus does not fit the pattern of a semicircular canal, at least that may be a red flag for central origin. The same is true if you have a pure vertical torsional nystagmus, then that may be also central. Other signs such as latency or duration or crescendo, decrescendo may not really help you because they can happen in both peripheral and central etiologies. Of course, um, you may say if you had examined the patient uh, completely with uh, oculomotor testing, you would have picked up additional signs uh, which would have led to a central origin, for example, rebound nystagmus or even a perverted head shake nystagmus or other subtle signs, for example, saccadic smooth pursuit. So again, it's important to examine all patients comprehensively, even if the clinical presentation seems to be clearly peripheral. Dr. Swergel, um, sometimes in acute settings, patients um, present to us and 
um, as a therapist or as a clinician, we may not have the accessibility of uh, using uh, infrared goggles or frontal lenses. In those situations where light may play a strong role and or may suppress the nystagmus, what uh, in your suggestion should we um, do? So there are some clinical tricks, if you like, how you can come around the, for instance, Googles or um, infrared things. So, um, of course, you need to have some kind of uh, examination with fixation and without in order to find out if the nystagmus is suppressed by fixation or not. So one uh, clinical hint would be that you just let the eyes close and look through the closed eyes if you see a nystagmus coming up. So at times that helps. And a second strategy would be to let just close one eye, uh, which is only partially suppressing it, and see how the nystagmus behaves on the other. There are obviously also some easier solutions, for example, the M classes, which actually do not really um, have to be carried around, but are quite handy. So there is different solutions on that problem. Okay. And um, uh, you had mentioned about downbeat nystagmus, and is, is downbeat nystagmus mostly a sign of cerebellar dysfunction? Yeah, so we, we think so. Actually, of course, there are some rare presentations which can also be from the brain stem or even other areas of the brain, but most of the cases of downbeat nystagmus are due to cerebellar dysfunction and explicitly to dysfunction of the flocculus and paraflocculus. So there's been imaging studies on that, and there is different um, patient cohorts examined to um, suggest that it is a mainly cerebellar problem, but still uh, recognize that the vestibular cerebellum is closely connected to the vestibular nuclei, so that has to be seen as a network in a whole. Right. Um, and if, if there's a torsion, uh, there's always been a controversy about um, downbeat nystagmus, wet torsion could be an anterior canal. Some believe that it's true, mm. some do not. Um, in your opinion, when we do experience a downbeat nystagmus in, in a patient, there was torsion and then suddenly there's a downbeat, should that also be considered as a red flag for the clinician? I think so. Whenever the nystagmus changes direction or just um, is modulated by certain positions um, of the head or body, uh, which is not um, pure stimulation of a semicircular canal, then that should be recognized as a red flag. Of course, that can also happen in other conditions, for example, in acute vestibular migraine, where you frequently see central pattern nystagmus with different kinds of modulations depending on head position. So at least I think we have to be sensitive to pick up central signs um, just to not oversee them and uh, cause harm to the patient. So in that case, I would agree to your opinion that we should be very careful and sensitive whenever the nystagmus changes direction. And um, is there a need to combine balanced tests along with neuroocular motor exam? You already mentioned about doing the testing and standing, but beyond that, should walking pattern be uh, assessed as well? Or we can, um, just with a pure neuro, good neuroocular motor exam, we should be um, very strongly uh, moving towards a good decision. 
So I think a testing gait is uh, especially important in the more persistent and chronic cases of cerebellar dizziness because we know that these patients mostly complain about gait instability or falls. And we do know that a cerebellar gait pattern is very indicative because it has a high variability, patients to have a ataxic broad-based gait. Um, it's um, worse on slow and fast uh, walking conditions. So, of course, these kinds of uh, gait examinations can really guide you towards a, a tactic gait pattern, which can be cerebellar. And you can easily distinguish it from pure sensory problems like bilateral vestibulopathy, but just let the patient shut the eyes and see if the gait pattern um, is getting worse when the eyes are closed. So that absolutely is important, especially in the context of a more chronic um, cerebellar dizziness. In your opinion, uh, Dr. Zwergel, if um, we already discussed having downbeat nystagmus and certain nystagmus and gait patterns that are similar or that may um, show signs of central that may show central signs. What other things uh, would you suggest to a, a, a clinician that, uh, especially a physical therapist, um, when they see that, and that's a referral guide to the neurologist, like any red, chief red flags beyond a neurocular mm -hmm. motor exam or a gait exam that, okay, this patient needs to go to a neurologist now? Exactly. So I think... Um... What may be a, a good red flag is just to ask for the frequency of falls because it's well known that the central gait and balance disorder patients fall much more frequently and do have more severe um, falling consequences than just the uh, vestibular peripheral patients. So whenever a patient regularly falls, then this may be one important red flag. Of course, if a patient reports other symptoms like cognitive decline, uh, vegetative autonomic dysfunctions, and of course, uh, dysfunctions of other systems like uh, fine motor disorders, etc., the patient should be referred to the neurologist. Have you um, noticed any association between cerebellar dizziness and autonomic dysfunction or they have become two separate entities. You know, there is a, a big overlap of uh, clinical signs and symptoms and underlying pathophysiology. So traditionally, um, you would say if a patient with a, a cerebellar pattern does have autonomic dysfunction, that may guide you to the idea that this could be a multi-systems atrophy of a cerebellar phenotype. And of course, there are also some hereditary disorders, uh, for example, certain subtypes of spinocerebellar ataxia where autonomic dysfunction can come into play. So other than that, it's not a very regular situation that patients with cerebellar dizziness complain about autonomic uh, dysfunctions. Now, when we have assessed, uh, now, how do we treat cerebellar dizziness? So first of all, it's um, the same as you would do for every balance problem. Of course, it's a multimodal treatment which combines uh, physical therapeutic approaches and potentially pharmacological approaches. 
So as it comes to medications, there are a few drugs which can be um, applied to patients with cerebellar ataxia or down weakness darkness. So the most uh, studied is the group of aminopuridins, um, actually the first study in 2004 being done in Munich with uh, 3,4-D aminopuridin. But we've moved on to the retard form, which is the fanpuridin, and uh, this is a principal option to treat these patients. We do know that about 50% of cases do have some response to it, and uh, in these cases, the pharmacological treatment can be continued long-term. Other options which are less well-established would be drugs like glooxoxone or the tanganeal, which is the N-acetyl-DL-leucine, which can help in certain cases. But actually, that's most of what we do know about the uh, medications which could be helpful for cerebellar dizziness. But additional to that, you should definitely do a um, vestibular and balance-centered um, rehabilitation approach to train the patient to keep mobility and to avoid falls. And how successful is the intervention? You mentioned about um, just about a 50% success. Um, or, it, it, or in certain diagnoses, they respond better to pharmacological treatment. Yeah. So, of course, um, if we come into the chronic uh, etiologies, of course, most of these disorders where we don't actually have a treatable course of the uh, cerebellar dizziness will be progressive over time. Um, of course, there is a big uh, spectrum of um, how long that takes and how severely the patient is affected. Overall, it's important to discuss these aspects with the patients so that they know how to prepare for certain um, problems in everyday life. I think that, you know, most patients, at least for certain times, stay um, mobile while they get treated uh, with um, symptomatic drugs and rehabilitation. But, of course, we do not have a treatment principle which reverses any kind of neuronal loss of the cerebellum yet. Of course, if there are other disorders which you could treat by origin, for example, a inflammatory cerebellitis, then, of course, you could even completely reverse the symptoms by treating the underlying disease. So that depends a lot on the patient situation and on the um, individual comorbidities. So, uh, in such cases, uh, the frequency and the duration of the treatment would primarily depend upon if it's a chronic condition as compared to an acute uh, condition. Exactly, yeah. The more chronic it is, the more uh, long-term treatment you will have to apply and the more problems there will be on the way. And as we suggest for vestibular patients, a balanced training actually should be lifelong. Um, in order to keep um, patients on their feet. And um, do you notice um, any any drugs that can just help them plateau, or um, any any suggestions to therapists that okay, patient is now on this drug, and patient will respond better now, and maybe the motor learning for the vestibular system is stronger during that time, or there's no study yet done on that. 
So we don't know exactly um, if there are drugs which may kind of um, add to the uh, therapeutic effects of rehabilitation in a sense that they are increasing neuroplasticity, if you like. So, of course, we do know such drugs from vestibular disorders, at least from animal experiments, which, again, would be beta-histine or, you know, the EGB761 ginkgo biloba or, for example, um, the tanganil again. But there is not really good data from patients so that you could commonly advise to give that medications additive to um, physical treatment. I know you're very actively working in uh, dizziness. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about it? Yeah, dizziness, uh, Dizinet actually is a network initiative which we started in 2014, and we will have our six years meeting now in autumn uh, in Munich again. So the idea of Dizinet actually is that we wanted to bring people from every different background um, engaged in vestibular research together. That means basic scientists, translational scientists, clinicians, uh, physical therapists, psychologists, childcare people, and, you know, even um, specialists in epidemiology and genetics. And the idea was that we wanted to join forces in order to address certain practical questions um, of everyday life. So how should we standardize our examination um, schedules and how could we screen for patients to be included in um, multi-century treatment trials. And one interesting thing is that Dara Meldrum from Ireland, she's been doing a um, survey now um, around physical therapists all over Europe to understand what is the current status of practice and what are the needs and potentially you know, most important interventions to be done to bring that field uh, closer together. So that is mostly a network uh, working on the practical problems and not like Barani Society on, um, you know, criteria for diagnosis or more um, abstract um, classification problems. And it works very well. So we just have um, far more than 80 members from 25 countries, and we quite start up with, you know, a database which is now working online. And to think that, you know, these kinds of approaches may lead to a better understanding of vestibular disorders, also based on new approaches like big data analyses or inclusion of multimodal data sets. Oh, that sounds very interesting and a big task, uh, I believe. Um, but I'm sure it'll be very, very successful and a great source for each one of us. It was wonderful talking to you, Dr. Zwerkel. Very, very informative session for us. Uh, thank you so much for joining with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation again, and I hope you all stay healthy and um, motivated with the patients which really need us and which need our input. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.